Good morning, everyone. It's so awesome to be with you all this morning and to just be invited to spend this Sunday worshiping with brothers and sisters. Um, it's funny, I was just, we were doing a study with our young adults in the book of Acts, and we just finished the part where Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Cornelius and all who are with him who believe, and you see Peter's reaction, and it was just such a sobering reminder that it's, it's not so much where we come from, but who we know and whose blood has cleansed us and made us righteous before the Father. And, and, it's, and it's funny because here I am standing up here and meeting all of you for the first time, and it's like, you know, I'm just with family, you know? You're just with family. You don't even think about it like that. So I am so excited to be here, and thank you to uh, Pastor Paulo for um, inviting me here to share the word this morning. Well, I guess just a quick background on me. Um, my name's Jason. Uh, I've been a pastor in Philadelphia for about six, actually it'll be six years tomorrow. So there you go, six years and I'm still here, right? And um, uh, my wife Heather is here this morning with my son Judah. He's going to be the loud one, I bet. Um, but it's all good. Um, he is 16 months. Heather and I have been married for six years. So I'm um, just been blessed by how the Lord's provided for our family. Um, I guess I'm free to share this. We are expecting another kid um, in February, so praise the Lord for that. Um, not sure how Judah and the dog will take to it, but, but we're, we're excited we're, and so thankful for how God has blessed our family. I grew up in Maryland. I'm Maryland, born and raised, so if you don't like any of the sports teams associated with Maryland, just remember that Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Um, so yes, I am a Ravens fan, so if there are any Giants fans out there, I'm sorry, and at the same time, ha. Um, but I'm from Maryland, grew up, um, my mom was a believer, my dad was not a believer. Uh, my dad actually died about a year ago, this coming August. Um, so that is still something that weighs upon my heart. But my mom took me to church pretty much all the time. I was at everything, even the things that I didn't know why I was at. And just grew up in the church. I was saved at the age of nine, put my faith in Christ, repented of my sins, um, knew that I needed a savior. I knew that something was wrong. Uh, my mom was having communion one Sunday and basically just rebuked me for even trying to have communion and was like, this is something that is only for the children of God as we remember the Savior. And I was very confused by that. And I remember asking my mom all kinds of questions. And in time, God worked in my heart and worked in my life and changed how I thought, changed what I saw even at the age of nine. And I put my faith in Christ and went through middle school, high school, was studying to be a marine biologist in college. And God quickly said, that is not what I want you to do, even though you love whales and dolphins, and I still do love whales and dolphins. And just, it's crazy how he got me on this path of studying the word more, and I was plugged into a young adult group there, and the next thing I know, I'm leading a Bible study there, and I'm, and I'm sharing my testimony more often, and I start getting this thought, like, maybe I should be a pastor. And it was like the Holy Spirit was like, yeah, why don't you do that one? That would be in accordance to what I want you to do. 
So in 2010, I went to Cairn University, used to be PBU, used to be PCB, it was probably something else before that. We change our name every like 30 years. But I went to Bible college where I did meet my wife. I graduated with a bachelor's of studies in Bible, three more years, got a master's in divinity, and was working on a THM thinking, okay, maybe I'll go become a Bible professor and then ministry stuff. And God once again was like, yeah, no, we're doing it this way. And that's how I ended up at our church in Philadelphia, um, where I'm the associate pastor. I primarily minister to the teenagers. Um, so that conference you're doing on uh, the biblical sexuality, that really blessed my heart because that is something that comes up a lot with teenagers as well as across the board. But let's just be honest, brothers and sisters, the world, Satan, the enemy, he's coming for the kids. Let's just call it like it is. And so I was really blessed to hear that you all are doing that. But we have a very blessed ministry there. Um, the kids are great. They're, they're truly an amazing group of kids. They love the Lord, and they're bringing their friends who don't know the Lord. So we're, we're just really blessed where we're at, and we're so thankful for all that God is doing amongst us. And the fact that, I'll share this quickly, when the pandemic hit, I remember stressful days wondering how are we going to get through this. I know how kids are. If they get out of rhythm, they fall off the map. And God, in his mercy, just calmed my heart and was like, I, I got this. You preach the word. I got this. And our youth group actually doubled during the pandemic just because of kids actually wanting to be with one another and their friends being like, well, I have nowhere to go. And they're like, well, I got somewhere where you can go. And praise God, even a few kids were even saved through all that. So God has just constantly been blessing us and watching over us and taking care of every one of my needs, my stresses, my concerns, which is one of the reasons why this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is such an impact to me, and it's really changed my heart and on a, how I think about a lot of different things. And so this morning we are going to be in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 41, passage that's probably familiar to most, um, if not all of you. And I will be starting, and like I said, in verse 35. And I'll read the whole passage through, and then we'll look at what uh, the Spirit has for us this morning. So starting in verse 35, Mark writes, On that day, when evening had come, he, meaning Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they, t they, took, with him they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, a passage that I'm sure is familiar to all of us, and one that we probably have heard many messages and sermons about. 
But I just want us to start our time in worshiping in God's word with thinking about this. I have become an avid news follower over the years as I've gotten older and matured. But I think we can all admit that the news is not something that you always want to watch. It seems like every day there's some new crazy thing that's going on, this new agenda that's being pushed forward. And at times it can feel like watching the news is in and of itself living in a storm or a hurricane, right? And then that triggers something in my mind because I've been in a hurricane before. Now granted, I confess, I did this of my own free will. So maybe you're all now questioning, maybe we shouldn't have, we should have maybe talked to Pastor Paulo before he came. He's been in hurricanes and he chose to do it. But let me explain quickly. So when I was little, my mom and I used to go on different trips and we would go to Ocean City, Maryland. Um, if you don't know, it's a beach. And one time we went and all of a sudden a hurricane just rolled in. And we were like, oh, it's not that bad. We can walk on the beach and everything. Because, you know, at the time it just looks like rain. Well, you did, we didn't need revelation to know when to turn back. If, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. When we got to the beach, we're walking on the beach, and all of a sudden there's just sand getting kicked up everywhere. I left that beach covered in sand. You look out on the waters. The waters are gray and rough, and they look like the sea looks angry. I never understood what that meant until I saw that water during that hurricane. The sky is gray, and everything just looks upset and chaotic, and there looks like there's a fury amongst creation in a way. And so when I read this passage, coupled with the fact that my wife and I had the privilege about two years ago to actually go to Israel and be on the Sea of Galilee, I do not struggle to imagine what this would have looked like. Now, I don't want to be in the water out there, but I'm just making the point that I'm not struggling to understand really what the disciples, what is happening in this scenario. And that's what I think about when I look at storms, when I think about the chaos of the world around me. I just think of that hurricane. I think of creation just looking upset and angry and chaotic. But then I have to pause, and what we're going to see this morning is this, that if you're familiar with how hurricanes and the vernacular of people who study hurricanes, they talk about the eye of the storm, right? And the eye of the storm being that center of the storm where there's supposed to be this calmness. That, like People talk about the eye of the storm where it's calm, but they still acknowledge that once the storm's moving, as the eye keeps going, the rest of the storm's going to keep coming with it, and that's where the chaos is going to follow the eye of the storm, right? Well, here's the beauty. Jesus is not the eye of the storm. See, too many people, I think, look at Jesus like the eye of the storm. Well, if I just get there, then it'll be calm, but I still know that there's like all these terrible things that are going to happen, and then they almost like make themselves upset again. But Jesus is the I am of the storm. See, he's not the calm that we just kind of sit there, hunker down, and hope everything's going to be okay. He's the I am where it says that even though everything's not okay, I am is with me, which means that I can face whatever is in front of me. So, Let's look at the context for the passage this morning, because as our lead pastor at FBC always reminds us, including me, that there are three rules of studying scripture. The first is context, the second is context, and the third is, you guessed it, context. So what's the context of Mark chapter 4? So Mark 4 begins right in verse 1 with Jesus standing on the shore of the sea, and he's teaching. And it says that he 
teaches them in different parables, many, again, we're familiar with. And then we come to Mark 35, and it says that evening had come. So picture it. Jesus has been teaching all day. How's that for a revival service, right? Jesus preaching, teaching from the early part of the day until the setting sun, right? And he tells the disciples, let's go across to the other side because there's something else that the Father has in store for him on the other side. And if you know Mark chapter 5, that's where you see him driving out the legion of demons. You see the bleeding woman. You see him raising Jairus' daughter. So clearly Jesus knows there's something on the other side of the sea that he is about to do. And so he tells the disciples, so let's go to the other side. And that's where our passage takes off. Now, as we get into God's word this morning, I want us to see three points. The first one being that we follow Jesus into the storm. The second one being that Jesus is calm in every storm. And the third being that Jesus is I am and in control in the midst of chaos. So first, let's look at the first point that we follow Jesus into the storm. Recall, if you will, Mark 36, it says that in leaving the crowd, they took with him. They took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him. Now, Mark is the only gospel that specifically tells us that other boats went out on the sea with him. As Grant Osborne puts it in his commentary, the emphasis is on Jesus' extreme popularity. As in verse, or chapter 1, verse 35 through 37 of the book of Mark, or chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus cannot get away and crowds followed him, ever, followed him everywhere. So, here, imagine being one of these people. You come, you've heard that Jesus of Nazareth, the great teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, who has done miracles, driving out demons and healing people, is teaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can imagine the crowds that rush to the shore to see Jesus, to hear him talk about the coming of the kingdom of God, that want to hear his message, see the miracles, that want to do what they are hearing their friends do, which is to go out and meet this man. You're wondering what kind of man this is. Can you picture the great crowds that were probably listening, excited to hear the message? And then Jesus gets in a boat, sails across, and these people scramble together to also get boats and follow him across the Sea of Galilee. Now, there are a few important realities to remember here, my friends, and the first is this, that following Jesus is not safe. Following Jesus is not safe. Jesus can, should, must be trusted in the storms of life. But sadly, many people have this idea, right, that storms come in their lives when they've disobeyed God. And I'm not saying that that's not the case, but that's not the only reason storms come. Jonah, for example, he ended up in a storm. Well, why did Jonah end up in a storm? Because he was running away from God. And too many times we have lovely brothers and sisters or people who are maybe new to the faith, new to following Christ, and they think like, oh no, this storm is happening because I've disobeyed God. Maybe, but not necessarily. But then you also have this. You have too many people that think that following Jesus is the easy way out of just life. You have people that believe, well, as long as I believe in Jesus, everything will be okay. As long as I believe in Jesus, that there will definitely always be prosperity in my bills and my health. And I, this is hopefully sounding familiar. Stuff like the prosperity gospel, which I think is one of the most dangerous 
I'm just going to say it, heresies that have ever really been uttered in modern day America, where that if you don't have faith, then these things won't happen for you. And in order for you to have faith, and this is what most of them say, that involves giving this preacher person money, right? Friends, that is a lie from the pits of hell. Because it's not about following Jesus to take the easier way out. Because as we clearly see in this passage, these people are following Jesus into the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes up. Some of them might have been even thinking, maybe we should have stayed on the shore. But here's what we know. Following Jesus is not a sprint, but a marathon. It's a journey. It's a race that we all must run. And Jesus's own words are an encouragement to us when we face the trials and the tribulations that we inevitably will face as we follow Christ. John 16.33, Jesus says this to the disciples as they are about to embark into a storm of unimaginable circumstances because Jesus has just told them that he's about to leave. And he offers them these words of encouragement. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. Now watch that. He didn't say you might have trouble, you could have trouble. Trouble could just spring up out of nowhere randomly, and you know if it doesn't, then you're doing great. He said will. In other words, he's saying it's a guarantee that trouble's going to come upon you. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. The word trouble, the word tribulation in that passage in John is from the Greek word that means it's, it's pressure alluding to affliction or anguish or burden or persecution or suffering or tribulation or just general trouble. Friends, that is a broad description of a hard life. I think each of us can relate to one of those words. I shared a little bit about my story and my testimony. When I was getting ready for college, my first year of college, I was going to Connecticut. I was ready to be a marine biologist. I realized one day that I couldn't make a fist. I was 18. This was me making a fist. Most 18-year-olds, that's not how they make fists. And the reason I couldn't do this, which, praise God, I can make a fist now, was because I was diagnosed with juvenile arthritis which eventually turned into mixed connective tissue disease, which, without getting all super technical, means that my immune system is so hyperactive that it can't distinguish between germs and sometimes the tissue or the cartilage in between my joints. So I can get, like, random tendinitis in my Achilles for no reason, for example. And I remember thinking that my life was basically over because... I used to play soccer, I liked to run, I liked to have fun. I, I was a crazy 18-year-old just enjoying life, praising the Lord, hanging out with my friends, right? I was a storm. And to be honest, I'm still in the storm. I still have mixed connective tissue disease, it's chronic. I can't ever get rid of it. And it's in my genes, so maybe my kids will have it. But take heart. For I have overcome the world. In other words, I've overcome even this momentary affliction. Because my hope is in Christ is that one day I will never have to worry about mixed connective tissue disease ever again. And, and this is something, as brothers and sisters, we need to remember that we are chosen by the sovereign God as exiles in this foreign land 
1 Peter 1, right? And then Paul goes on later to say in 2 Timothy 3, that indeed all who desire to live godly lives after Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, just facing trials and troubles and tribulations, it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. J.C. Ryle said it like this. True Christianity will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought ill by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, or even hated. The reality, friends, is that following Jesus, trusting Jesus, is worth it because he is the great I am who is with you during every storm. And maybe I shared about my life, but maybe even for some of you, right now feels like a storm. Maybe right now just feels like utter chaos. Maybe with the prices of everything going up, maybe finding food is hard. Maybe finding a job is hard. Housing is difficult. Not even going to talk about gas. But life right now is hard for so many people. And yet, at the same time, we need to remember the truth that Christ is with us, even though these storms, these, this chaotic time that is happening right now, and that we are following him in the midst of it, that he's already gone before us. Think the children of Israel in the wilderness, right? The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire going before them. But what would happen when they were being attacked from behind? God would move and come behind them and take care of them, watch out for them, protect them, meet their every need. But here's the other thing we need to remember, and it goes along with this, that as we follow Christ, we cannot be surprised by the storms. We should not be surprised by the storms. And I've already alluded to it a little bit, but let's dig a little deeper. Because the people of Israel would have understood the reputation of the Sea of Galilee when they went out there following Jesus. They knew. They knew that storms could come. But here's the interesting thing. That Jesus went out on the Sea of Galilee at nighttime. A storm coming at nighttime was less likely because what, what do we know from Scripture? We know that that's when Peter and other fishermen would fish. Remember Peter, when Jesus interacts with him, when he encounters him for the first time, Peter spent all night fishing and caught nothing. So, yes, they're following him. Yes, they know storms can come about, but it's less likely during the night. Sadly, troubles and tribulations don't go by our timetables. I would like it sometimes if they did. I think most of us would. But they just don't. Life, temptations, trials, tribulations, they come about. Satan doesn't give you a warning when he's about to tempt you. So we should expect storms in this life. And we should expect unexpected storms in our lives. And yet at the same time, we need to stay focused. We need to keep following Jesus because who knows what storm is right around the corner. I remember having a pastor say to me one time, Jason, trials, storms, tribulations, valleys, if you want to use that word, it works like this. You have them over here, and then you have what people, they love the mountaintop, right? Everybody loves the mountaintop. They love when they come out of the storm in the valley and everything. And he said to me one time, he goes, Jason, don't get too excited about that, but instead prayerfully prepare your heart for the next storm that's coming. Because you don't know when it's coming. 
You could be getting out of one storm and then the next moment you're right back in another one. And you're wondering, well, how did that happen? Don't worry about how it happened. Make sure that your heart is ready for it. Because as we're about to see, Jesus is calm in the storm. So let's talk about this, Jesus being calm in the storm. We see the windstorm come. Looking in verse 37, right? There's a great windstorm. So now the wind is howling, as they say. The waves are breaking into the boat. The boat is filling with water. Uh, one of our other pastors at my church in Philly, Pastor Mike Gerald, he tells a story about how he went on a cruise ship with his family and he was sailing the Mediterranean. They were visiting Greece, Greek islands and everything. And it's a really cool sounding trip until he got to this part. He said that they were in their cabin and you know how cruise ships work, right? You, you have the cabin, you have the window and it's so cool to look out on the ocean and everything. But they were high up in, in the cabin, right? And they were in their cabin and they were resting, but you know, they're hitting rocky waters and everything and the boat and you know, he, he's like, okay, this is uncomfortable, but you know, we're okay. And then he could see the tip of waves in his window. That's the part of the cruise where I'm just going to sleep. There's no point in being awake anymore. Nothing good is going to come from looking out that window. He said that his whole family, he, his wife and his daughter, I believe, were the ones that actually like laid down on the ground so that they would not be tempted to look out the window. And they fell asleep actually on the floor. But, but when you're thinking waves breaking, this is no ordinary storm. In fact, when you look at it, right, the windstorm is described as great. The waves are breaking in. The boat is filling with water. This is a very bad situation we have on our hands, friends. And then we turn to the most important figure in this narrative, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus is asleep. So you see Jesus in this situation. And it's really easy to be like, well, he's God. Of course, he's calm, right? He's God. And I'm not saying he's not. Jesus is truly, fully, 100% the son of God, the great I am, spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Before Abraham was, I am. I am not knocking that at all. In fact, that is the only reason why any of us have any hope. It's because he's I am. But just think about this for a second. He's asleep because he's been teaching all day, so he's tired. And we have to keep in mind that Jesus is also human, truly, fully, 100% human. Now, R.C. Sproul tells a story about how his friend, Dr. Um, du Bois, James Montgomery Du Bois, they were on a plane one time, and Du Bois had the window seat, and R.C. Sproul had that middle seat, that dreaded middle seat on the airplane, right? And they hit some turbulation, and the plane dropped because the pilot had to quickly adjust, right? Now, I've been in a situation where a plane has mildly dropped, and I was contemplating if I would be good at skydiving because it just feels uncomfortable. See, we make irrational decisions when we're terrified, right? And, and Dr. Du Bois was asleep 
And R.C. Sproul, Dr. Sproul, was like gripping the chair so tight he said he lost finger feeling in his fingers. And that's the picture that we have before us here where you have Jesus who is calm as calm can be in the midst of this storm. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, why? And that's where we have to be careful. We don't want to just be like, well, he's God, so of course he's calm. It's true, but he's also human. So what is it about Jesus right now? Why is he so calm? Well, number one, Jesus had great faith in the Father. Jesus trusted the Father. In my ministry opportunities and everything that I do in Philadelphia, it's, like I said, I minister to the students. And there's this thing about young people, right? And if there are any young people here this morning or viewing this, it, this is not a shot at young people. I was once what you are now, even though I still look like I'm not a day over 16. <laughs> but there's something about young people where they don't really live day by day. Right? I can remember being young and I would always be like, well, you know, I'll do that tomorrow, or you know, that'll come, or when I'm in college, or when I get married, or when I, and everything's in the future. It's almost like they don't remember that Christ himself said that tomorrow is not promised. Now, maybe it's not they don't remember, maybe it's that they don't know or understand. But I've also, in my life, known people that were worried and terrified about dying. For example, my father, who I already said wasn't a believer, he was a lot like this. My father was afraid of death, and to be honest, for every right he should have been. Because the Bible talks about what happens after people die, even if people want to ignore it. Well, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Jason, what's that got to do with Jesus' calmness? It's this. Jesus knew that this storm wasn't going to be the end of him, Right? Because he knew about the cross, but he also knew the promise that comes after the cross, the resurrection. See, God promised it to his son. But on top of that, we have Jesus entrusting himself, and that's the point I'm making, that Jesus is entrusting himself to the care of the Father. So yes, even though the boat is sinking, which would make it very difficult to sleep, I'm tired right now, and I'm going to be calm, and when the time comes, I'm going to calm this storm. It's not time yet, so I'm taking a nap. Grant Osborne puts it, most likely that the thrust of Jesus' great trust in God, which enabled him to remain asleep even in the churning waves and the howling winds. I know people that can't sleep in their house when it's storming outside because of the noise. Jesus just is a full-blown knocked out. And he has every right to be. He's tired. But there's also an important application here for all of us, and that's this, that when the storms come, we need to remember the promises of God. Just as Jesus trusted the Father in this storm, in fact, he trusted him in every storm, which is why he is the perfect Lamb of God, you and I must trust the Father in our storms. When I was at Care University, I remember listening to a sermon by Charles Stanley, and I, I think most of you would be familiar with him. And Dr. Stanley was encouraging his church and all those listening that when they read a promise in God's word, they should write the word promise next to it and put the date. And I thought, well, that's an interesting concept to write the word promise, put the date. And so I started doing that just because it seemed like a cool idea. So you put, like you read a promise in scripture, you put promise 
January 6, 2013 kind of thing, right? And I was doing that for years and years and years and years. And then I remember flipping through my Bible on a different day, and I just saw promise, the date. You read a little, promise the date, promise the date. And I'm like, whoa, first of all, number one, that's a lot of promises. But inevitably, what was I creating, even though I didn't really understand that I was creating it, I was creating a scrapbook, if I can call it that, of God's promises. So that when I'm flipping through scripture, two things are happening. Number one, I'm remembering the promise. But I'm also remembering, number two, the day. And as I remember the day, I'm like, oh, I remember that situation. And I'm remembering the promise that's connected to that situation. And I'm remembering how God got me through that situation. Because, as we've already stated, right, when that next thing comes, I'm going to need a promise. Because I know my heart. I know the human heart. There's a reason why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. We forget stuff. Look at the whole nation of Israel. Ten plagues in the wilderness two weeks. We're hungry. Go back to Egypt. It was better there. No, it wasn't. We were slaves for 400 years, people. We're such fickle, forgetful people. We need to remember the promises of God in order to stay calm in our storms. And when we forget them, we need to have the heart of the father in Mark 9 who brought his son to the disciples and they couldn't drive out the demon from their son. And Jesus comes and he's talking to the father and the father says, if, never say if to God. God is not an if God. He's a when God. It's up to us to trust him if the when is not when we want it to be. But the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, and Jesus says, if. No, 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 I don't, I don't do ifs. I either do or I don't. And the father said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, that's my prayer whenever I'm in storms and I'm like, I'm not, I know I'm not trusting the promises. Father, I believe your promises, but help my unbelief. And we need to pray that with all sincerity when we go through those moments. Charles Spurgeon writes this in reference to the great calm of the sea, which I believe is related to the calmness we're seeing in Jesus. He writes, there was a great calm. How any of us, have any of us ever felt a great calm? It is much more ordinary than peace of mind. It is to one's heart as if there were no further possibilities of fear. One's troubles have so completely gone that such a person can scarcely remember them. There is no one but the Lord himself who could speak to produce such a calm. See, what, what I'm seeing right here is an interesting thing, right? Jesus, in his peace, is showing us what it looks like to have the peace that passes all understanding. So many people in this world want peace. Peace from maybe peace in their home. Maybe their kids are just running wild. 
and the parents just want peace. Maybe the kids are seeing their parents fighting on this roller coaster relationship that is inevitably going to end in a divorce, and the kids just want peace. Again, flipping on the news, who doesn't just want peace in Ukraine? Who would just love that to just, we want peace, right? But as far as it pertains to life, we all want peace in our lives, but we all know people, maybe even in our own lives, where we've tried to find peace in the worst possible ways. People who try to find peace in drugs, people who try to find peace in alcohol, people who try to find peace in relationship, bouncing from one partner to the other, people who try to find peace in friendship, social media. Well, if I don't get this person to like me or to, if I don't post this and they don't give me this response or I don't get, the only way any human being will find peace in this life is to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and submit to him and to put all their faith and hope and trust in the one true God who has the ultimate plan for their life, which is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they will put their faith in him, receive newness of life, and that peace that passes all understanding. I'm not worried about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough troubles. I am focused on the coming kingdom of God, and I'm seeking his righteousness and knowing that he's going to take care of everything else. That's the peace we see in Christ which is interestingly juxtaposed to the reaction that you see in the disciples. And I confess, I am more like the disciples than I am Jesus. Praise God for his mercy and for his grace. Because you see in verse 38, we read the disciples, many of whom are expert fishermen, they know the water. I mean, Jesus is a carpenter, God bless him, but he's not a fisherman, right? That's probably what some of them are thinking which is why he's allowed to be asleep right now. Verse 38, they woke him. Don't you hate when people wake you up? Oh, I would have been so annoyed if I was Jesus. Praise God he's Jesus and I'm not. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, don't you care? Now, Quickly, I want us to just keep that in mind, but I want us to also be thinking about Jesus' response for a moment. His response to the disciples later on in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? That is a cutting statement. That one cuts right to the heart. So quick word on that. Right? Because he's questioning their reasoning for being afraid. He's right there. He's right there. I've seen the boats. I've I've been to a museum in in Galilee where you see the kind of boats, and and they're impressive, but they're not cruise ships. I'd understand if you got to run down this hall, turn here, you go here, you're turning this way, and you're trying to find Jesus on a massive cruise ship like the Titanic. I can understand that, right? These boats were not big. They could just turn around and be like, oh, he's asleep. He's right there. So he's saying, what are you afraid of? I'm right here. I'm with you. But then he also questions their faith. And not just their faith in the Father, or not just their faith in the Father, but also their faith in him. And I can't help but remember Jesus' words in John 14, 
We know John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But back up to the beginning of John 14, where he's talking to Peter after he's told Peter you're going to deny him. That was probably a shot to Peter's heart. And, 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 and he says to the disciples, but don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That, brothers and sisters, that is a statement that should give us so much encouragement. Because Jesus is saying, like, yeah, this is hard right now. You are suffering. This is scary. This is unforeseen. You believe in the Father. And that's the right thing to do. But believe also in me. Why? Because the Father and I are one. So we see Jesus is clearly rebuking something in the disciples. So let's see what that something is. Because the disciples are early in their walk with Christ, right? And they are lacking faith. In fact, they lacked faith up until the moment, right, where they came to take Jesus away. They were struggling with their faith in that moment. Peter's trying to cut off people's heads, and he's missing them and cutting off ears. He's denying Jesus. Everyone else is scattering. The only one that stayed with him, right, was the Apostle John. So what do we see here from the disciples? Well, one thing we see is that their lack of faith here is astonishing. It really is astonishing when you think about it. Not because they lack faith. Not because they lack faith. I've already confessed to all of you this morning that I'm like the disciples. What's astonishing is their accusations against Jesus. That's the part that's astonishing. So their first accusation, right? They are accusing Jesus of not caring. That's a yikes moment if I've ever seen one, right? Teacher, do you not care? That's like one of those times people try to do passive questions to try to get you to do something, right? Sometimes I do this with my wife, sometimes she does it with me, right? Something like, don't you think that you should take out the trash? And you're just like, well, no, if I thought I should take out the trash, I, I would have taken out the, oh, I see what's happening now, right? Or I'll be like, don't you think you should do this with your car or when you're on your computer working, like kind of thing, right? So they're like, don't you, do you not care about us, is basically what they're saying. You know what the beauty of the gospel is? That these people will soon see just how much Jesus cares about them. But their lack of faith also shows what they think about Jesus and that they don't really understand who's in this boat. Like, they don't really have a clue who is with them right now. Because how did they even address him? Teacher. Now, he is a great teacher. But he is the teacher of all teachers. Hebrews 1 says that in the olden days, our forefathers learned through the prophets, but in these latter days, he has spoken to us through his son. Brothers and sisters, we don't need any more prophets or teachers. The word of God has spoken and revealed himself to us. And the fact that they even at the end said, who is this man that even the winds and the seas obey him? That should tell you something about what they were preconceiving, what they were already thinking about Jesus up until this moment. They did not know who they were working with, or should I say working for, but they did one day. And they forgot his very words to them. 
And it's one of those things, don't you love when you read scripture and you might read something over and over and over and over and over, and then you read it for like the 9,000th time and you're just like, wait a minute. Now, I know that's been there the whole time. But man, that's cool, Lord. Verse 35, right? Jesus says, let us go across to the other side. Now, I'm just a simple preacher from Philadelphia. But if Jesus says, let us go across, I'm assuming we're going to get across. Again, that's just my brain. And yet, they completely forgot that he even said that. Because they don't know who he is. Because their faith is just all over the place right now. In this storm. You see, brothers and sisters, they're all connected. Our faith and who Jesus is means that we will trust him and take him at his word. And that is the only way to find peace in these storms. So let us all humbly acknowledge that there are times we are like the disciples. And let us also never forget who Christ is as we see him calm in every storm. But let's turn our hearts now to the climax of this passage with this third point, that Jesus is the great I am, even in the midst of every storm and situation. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. So you could just read that, dust off your hands, right, and go home. What, what a blessing. So what do we see here? We see right away that Jesus says to the wind that you will be still. You will have peace. And we've already talked about peace this morning. But it's still appropriate to say this, that when Jesus declares peace, there is peace. See, the only reason, brothers and sisters, we have peace with God is because Jesus said peace through my blood. And it is an everlasting peace that goes on into eternity. It may start this side of heaven, but it goes all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. And so I'm imploring any of you here this morning or any of you watching that if you do not know Jesus, if you do not have the peace that passes all understanding, that you would turn, repent from your sins, put your faith in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, and put all your hope and trust, even if you don't understand all the way who he is, if your faith is like that of a mustard seed, God says that is enough. Repent and put your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, that his all-sufficient death paid for your sins totally, removing them as far as the east is from the west, and that his victorious resurrection over sin, death, and the grave says that no more shall death and sin have reign over your life. If you want to know peace, that is where you need to turn. And praise God for those of us who have turned that we can still rejoice and that peace and promise is still true for us even today. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But see how Christ reveals himself to us in this passage. Friends, aren't you glad that nothing is too hard for Jesus? That Jesus can easily turn water into wine. That he can just tell demons 
to go when they leave. That they're terrified of him. I had a kid in youth group one time ask me, Pastor Jason, do you rebuke demons? I'm like, no, I don't. That's, that's not my area of XUTs. I do not. I don't do that. Because they're more scared of my God than they are of me. That's, that's not what I do. I don't, I don't walk around looking for that kind of trouble. But even if they find me, I got Jesus. There's nothing that the legions of darkness can do to me. And we see that concept even here because the word that is used in this passage, there are three interesting words here. Rebuke, peace, and be still. Now, what do you think of when you think of rebuking, right? We think of Jesus and how he often rebuked demons. It's a similar language here. He's rebuking the winds, which earlier in Mark he rebuked evil spirits, In the next chapter, he's going to rebuke a legion of demons. And as one commentator writes, the word rebuked and be still were used in in Mark 1.25 with reference to an exorcism. And this consideration may apply to the demonic element in the storm. In fact, the latter word, so the Greek word here, which is translated in our Bibles as be still or be quiet, is translated be muzzled literally, which is what Jesus says to the demons when they are crying out to say who he is, and he says, stop talking, and then he casts them out, right? This is the point we're making this morning, friends. Jesus has ultimate authority over every situation. There's never a situation Jesus walks into, and he's like, ooh, I don't know how to handle that one. I'm like that. Especially in ministry, right? You walk into a situation, if you're ministering to a person, and you're just like, I have no idea what to do with you. See, right now you're talking and I look like I'm listening intently. Inside, I am freaking out and praying. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't freak out? Oh, he prays. Praise God for the prayers of Christ, right? But he never freaks out. Never freaks out. Jesus also has the final say. And this is an important point to remember. If not the most important point. So the Greek word here for be still is actually in the perfect tense. Now, what's that significant for? As one commentator puts it like this, the use of the perfect tense means be still and stay still. In other words, when Jesus said be still, the storm wasn't like, well, can I pick up again in like five minutes? He said, no, I said still, so stay still. See, when Jesus speaks, it happens and it stays the way it's supposed to be until he speaks again. So when God said, let there be light, the light didn't say, well, for how long? God just said, I just said, let there be light. So the light says, so we just going to keep going. When God created, he used the word of his mouth and everything was. God created out of nothing because before God spoke, there was nothing there, even though he always has been. Praise God that when he speaks, it stays the way he spoke it to be. And that's an encouragement for us because when God declares us right with him, there is nothing we can do to now declare ourselves unright with him. One of the most beautiful truths of God's word is that there is nothing anyone can do to lose their salvation. That's hope. Now, the disciples see Jesus. He is I am. He is the great I am. 
But sadly, we live in an age, we live, I believe, to be flat honest with you, brothers and sisters, that we are living in the last days. Because people are having their ears tickled and believing whatever they want to believe. And there are a lot of people who believe all kinds of things about Jesus. Let me just quickly go through a list of what people believe. That Jesus is a king that's coming to destroy earthly elements that will now let me do whatever I want. So they see him as some king person, but not the king the Bible says, but a king that will be like, well, you guys can now go do what you want. People are just getting in your way. Some people see Jesus just as some political figure with political agendas. Some people see Jesus as the liberator to the oppressed. This is what people call liberation theology, where Jesus comes and he does all the things he does, but it's to set free a certain small group of either ethnic minorities or social minorities. This is what many in the LGBTQ plus community believe as far as liberal Christianity, right? Then there are some who see Jesus as a social justice warrior. No concept of the gospel, no concept of sin, redemption, hell, heaven, resurrection, none of that. Jesus just came to do really nice things for people. All of these miss the mark on who Jesus is. And if you miss the mark on who Jesus is, as we heard this morning, you are not of God. The Bible tells us who Jesus is. We can't change the definition of Jesus any more than we can change the definition of marriage or life. Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is God. Jesus is not what we make him to be. There's a sermon by a pastor by the name of S.M. Lockridge. I don't know if you've heard of him. Wonderful preacher. But he has a sermon called, That's My King. And I'm just going to read this paragraph right here. It's a short paragraph. You can find the whole sermon online. But it's such an encouraging sermon because, again, we sometimes forget who Jesus is. He says, My king was born king. The Bible says that he's a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's an ethnic king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Now, that's my king, but I wonder, do you know him? My king is a king of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of mighty. He's the captain of conquerors. He's the head of heroes. He's the leader of legislatures. He's the overseer of overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. I'm coming to tell you this morning that the heavens can't contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate found no fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, the grave couldn't hold him, that's my king. See, that's the Jesus we serve, who is with us through every storm, who is calm in the midst of every storm. 
John 1.1 says that he was there in the beginning. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were created by him. He had lunch with Father Abraham. Abraham gave a tithe to him in the person of Melchizedek. He spoke with Moses in the burning bush. He spoke to Joseph before the battle of Jericho. He was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because Nebuchadnezzar looked in there and he said, Guys, we threw three in and the fourth one looks like a god. Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the only one worthy of opening the seven-sealed scroll in heaven. He's the King of the Jews, and one day he will return to sit on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. And even though Satan will mount one final rebellion, you think the storms in life are this? Satan's going to try one more time at the end, friends. He's going to mount one more rebellion and Jesus is going to stand up from his throne and call down fire from heaven and crush all of his enemies. This is who is with us when we go through life. This is who was in the boat. This is who, when we're in storms, that's why we don't need to be worried about the eye of a storm because we are with I am in a storm. And that is why we can handle every situation that comes our way even if he doesn't say peace be still to the storm he will say it to our hearts because we are his and he is ours will you join me as we close this time of our worship in a word of prayer our gracious and heavenly father lord we thank you for who you are we thank you lord for sending your son we thank you father for the grace that we receive through him Lord, we are all going through different storms. Some may be mightier than others, but they're storms to us. We look around us, Lord, the world is of one giant storm. Thank you for being the peace in the midst of every storm. Thank you for being with us in every storm. And thank you, Lord, for even if you don't calm the storm, you calm your children. Help us to remember your promises, Father. And may we never forget, Lord Jesus, who you are and that you are coming back soon for your people and bringing everything back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.